0: Hi, this is Oren. If you find these teachings useful and you'd like to learn more about my work, you can visit me online at orenjsofer.com or on social media at orinjsopher. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you for listening. If you'd like to support Oren's work, you can donate at orenjsofer.com forward slash support.
0: So beginning with gratitude is always a good uh, good practice. At the end of our sit, we offer this, uh, this chant, which is an acknowledgement of the gratitude and connection to the Buddhist lineage, starting with uh, Siddhartha Gautama, and then acknowledging the, the triple gem, the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. And so teaching here in the East Bay, In Berkeley, I want to begin by respectfully acknowledging the First Nation peoples of the Ohlone, who lived on this land for many generations and still do and hopefully will for generations to come. So, what draws us to be together tonight in this room? Thank you. I think um, a lot of different things probably that bring us together, that bring us to contemplative practice. For some, it might just be wanting less stress in our lives or looking to sharpen our mind, you know, to enhance our ability to focus and pay attention. Some of the kind of more practical benefits of mindfulness. Um some of us may come to the path for healing, emotional healing or deeper spiritual healing. Sometimes we might just be looking for a way to, to manage in life and kind of handle things and perhaps engage in our relationships or in our society in ways that are more skillful. And for some, it might just be spirit of curiosity You know, just exploring what is it to be alive? What is it to be human? I think that whatever draws us to meditate, to explore this path, uh, we all have certain needs as human beings. And above and beyond our needs for sustenance, safety, connection. I think we have a deep need for meaning, for some, some kind of deeper satisfaction, for some fulfillment in life. And I know for myself, that's one of the things that drew me to this path, was the promise of some kind of happiness or peace or fulfillment that was more enduring than what was on offer in modern American society. And as we all know, that kind of satisfaction doesn't come from the next device, or a nice meal, or a new movie. There's some pleasure there, of course, but it's fleeting. You know, Even getting the right job or the right relationship doesn't really cut it in that, in that deeper way. That, uh, that we can long for as humans. I think most of us have tasted something deeper, that we know it inside. A kind of peacefulness or a quality of well-being that's not dependent on things being any particular way. You know, if you think back to maybe moments in your childhood where there is a sense of, Openness and wonder, and just kind of a a deep sense of ease or connection with things. Not all of the time, of course, but but for, for a moment, here or there. Or maybe moments in nature, where something touched us, some beauty. Or looking out at a vista and feeling some connection, like that everything's okay or that we feel a sense of place or belonging. That's, that's wordless. It's not dependent on an idea. There's just some sense of everything coming into alignment or focus. And there's a sense of it being all right, even with all of the difficulties and challenges and confusions of life, that there are these moments where the it's it's like, that which is blurry and disconnected all of a sudden kind of falls into place for a time. And things make sense, even in their imperfection and incompleteness. And then we lose and then we lose that perspective. They get out of alignment, out of focus again. I think we have these experiences because it's it's intimately a part of who we are we're discovering or remembering something deeper about our nature. And so the question is, how do we spend more time there? How do we spend more time at home in this this way of being in ourselves and in relation to the world? How do we start to live in connection with the deepest place that we've known in our life? And so this is one of the one of the tasks and one of the the promises of any spiritual or contemplative path is to discover really how to how to live from that place how to how to be at home and stay at home regardless of the circumstances of our life. And so what I'd like to talk about tonight is one of the core factors in the Buddhist path uh, that sort of the engine of growth and progress and discovery in meditation. I want to talk about mindfulness. Mindfulness gets a lot of press lately for good reason. It's a very potent quality of mind. I want to go over some of the basics, hopefully in a different way perhaps than you've heard, just to make sure we're all on the same page about what mindfulness is, this core quality that's sort of the engine of spiritual practice in the Buddhist tradition, Um, and then offer some suggestions perhaps of a way you haven't thought about mindfulness before. So the first point to make is that we all have mindfulness. It's an innate capacity and quality of the human mind, we couldn't get through a day without some mindfulness. So when we lose mindfulness, it's pretty obvious and frustrating, so even disturbing when you can't remember where your keys are, or you walk into a room and all of a sudden you realize, why did I come in here, right? The mind just kind of zones out. That sense of being aware of what's happening and tracking the continuity of things from one moment to the next kind of just goes down, it's like the mind goes offline for a little bit. Ever have the experience of driving home, pulling into a parking space or driveway or wherever you leave a vehicle and realizing, I don't remember driving here. Really scary, right? It's like we were just on automatic. There's a loss of mindfulness, loss of this quality of presence. And these are lightweight examples. You see the kinds of things that happen with larger consequences when we lose mindfulness, whether we get into an accident or like walking and texting, that kind of thing, or losing mindfulness and saying something reactive to somebody that we didn't mean to say, that causes damage or pain in a relationship. So mindfulness is a very kind of basic quality that keeps us safe in our life, physically, emotionally, relationally. But the benefits obviously go much further than that, both personally in our own life and in terms of our society. Mindfulness ultimately starts to reveal that which we don't see, that which we are unaware of. And this is one of the ways I want to explore mindfulness tonight, is as a quality of mind that illuminates that which we don't already see. I was spending some time with my father recently back on the East Coast. He's in his mid-70s now. He grew up in Israel. And um, his family was very poor growing up. And so when he was old enough to, uh, to be sent off to a kibbutz, his parents sent him off so there was one less mouth to feed. So he was probably about 12 or 13. He went to live on a kibbutz. Um, this was um, before 48, so this was uh, British Palestine. And um, so I was spending some time with him and there's a place near his house in New Jersey where you can park and look out at New York City. And so we were, we were driving back and uh, the sun was setting. And so we stopped by the side of the road to just watch the sunset over New York City. Very beautiful view. And as we were watching, he told me a story. He said, you know, when I was a kid at the kibbutz, I had a room with a window on a hill. And the first few weeks that I got to the kibbutz, every night I would stand in the room and watch the sunset over the hills, and it was so beautiful. He said, and then a few months in, I was in my room doing something and all of a sudden I looked out the window and I realized that the sun was setting and I'd stopped watching. And he kind of paused. It always bothered me, he said. Why did I stop remembering to watch? But when we lose mindfulness, we go to sleep. We stop being here for our life. And we can sleepwalk through our whole life without mindfulness. There are people who spend their whole life lost in thought, never actually really being here, experiencing the wind or the taste of water. We're smelling the lilacs in spring. This is from the Dhammapada, the Buddha says, heedfulness is the path to the deathless. Heedlessness is the path to death. The heedful do not die. The heedless are as if dead already. And heedlessness or heedfulness is a synonym for mindfulness here. So mindfulness gives us back our life. It reveals that which we're not seeing when we go to sleep, when we're on automatic. It wakes us up from the dreamlike blur of our days. Ever have that feeling when your head hits the pillow at night? It's like another day. Where did it go, another day? Where did it go, another day, you know? And I'm in my 40s now. It seems like it just keeps getting faster. <laughs> Think back to when you were a kid and summer was ages away, right? And now it's like it's already June. How did that happen? So without mindful awareness, our lives are ruled by our conditioning. There's a saying, habit is the greatest tyrant. Our minds habituate to things. We like patterns, they help us to function, you know? We need patterns. But then as soon as there's a pattern, it becomes a habit, and then we go to sleep. We stop paying attention. Or we're run by the incessant pressure to get things done, to accomplish, to achieve. To always move on to the next thing, to get somewhere else. So mindfulness reveals all of this the conditioning and the patterning, the pressure, the habits that are running our lives that we don't see if we don't actually look. And it opens the door again to the wonder of the present moment, to the mystery of being alive in this warm, sensitive, pulsing body. So the Buddha talked about mindfulness as a leader. He said it's... um, called one of the indriya, one of the, um, the spiritual powers. And in its wake come all of the other helpful, healthy qualities of mind. It's kind of like the first one that opens the gate to all kinds of other healing, nourishing resources in the heart and the mind. Mindfulness has this very unique property when we become mindfully aware and I'll say a little bit more in a few moments about what, what I actually mean by mindfulness when I use this word. When we become aware of something unhealthy, difficult, painful, afflictive in our mind, mindfulness has the power that it, it gets smaller. It withers in the light of awareness. And the healthy, uplifting, bright, nourishing qualities of our minds when there's mindfulness presence, those grow. This is one of the unique properties of mindfulness and why it's such an important factor on the path to awakening. One of my first teachers used to say, mindfulness is the only way to be free. It's necessary for every step in the path from the very beginning of building a foundation of ethical conduct and living, right? We need to actually be aware and know what we're doing if we're going to live with some kind of, some level of integrity. All the way up to the final stages of awakening in which awareness is liberated from any kind of identification or grasping with consciousness or experience. So what is mindfulness? Well, right now, are you aware that you're sitting? Were you aware a few moments ago? Maybe some of you are. But can you actually feel your body sitting, experiencing it directly? That's mindfulness. It means knowing what's happening directly in the moment. Let's just do another brief experiment. I want you to think the thought I move my hand through space. Just go ahead and think that. Okay? And now I want you to do it. Feel your hand as you move it. Okay? So feeling your hand, that's mindfulness. There's a difference between thinking about being mindful and being mindful. Being mindful means that we're experiencing what's happening in the moment, just as it is. It's a receptive awareness that's intimate with experience. It's feeling and knowing it directly. So the word in Pali, the language of the original Buddhist text, is sati, which literally means to remember. So mindfulness has this aspect of remembering, to be aware, remembering to be here. And this is another meaning of mindfulness, that we, we bear something in mind. We keep a certain theme, topic, or experience in the foreground of our awareness. We stay connected with it. We keep remembering to be there, whether it's with the breath or our body. In the teachings, we talk about the four foundations of mindfulness, the body, our feelings, our emotions and thoughts, and the very patterns of experience. These are basically a way of saying everything and anything in our life we can be aware of, we can be mindful of. So we can be aware of what's happening, but still be caught, still be reactive, Still be oppressed by what's happening or confused. So we can be aware of our breath, but still be trying to control it or feeling tight around it. Have you ever had that experience in meditation? Or we can be aware of an emotion, but still be spinning, still be lost in it. We can be aware of what's happening in our society or on the planet and be overwhelmed or lost in despair, or depression, or anger. So mindfulness isn't just about being aware, it comes with other qualities, and this is very important. Mindfulness is always paired with other factors in the mind. One of the most important ones is equanimity, which is uh, the aspect of mind that allows us to stay balanced, to not get lost or spun around by experience. And these two qualities of mindfulness and equanimity really work together. And they can be summarized as knowing what's happening and not losing perspective. So being aware of what's happening in this very direct, intimate way and then staying balanced. So another very important way that mindfulness is talked about is bare attention. And this means that we are coming into contact with experience in a non-conceptual way in a direct way so that our knowing of experience isn't distorted by our preferences, our ideas, beliefs, prejudices. It's just the actual experience minus anything extra that we add. And this is one of the great strengths of mindfulness is that it it reveals to us the difference between what's happening and the stories we tell about it. And this is where some of the potential for freedom starts to come from mindfulness. Joseph Goldstein tells a story, one of the uh, founding insight teachers in, in this tradition, of speaking with a meditator on a retreat who was describing his meditation experience and saying, you know, I was meditating and I noticed that my jaw was really tight. And then I started And then I realized that I'm really an anxious person. I've always been anxious. And so Joseph responds, so it sounds like you felt some tension in your jaw. Yeah, and then I started realizing that I've always been anxious. I'm probably always going to be anxious. And that's why I've never been able to be in a relationship. That's why I'll probably never ever be able to, to stay in a relationship because I'm so wound up tight. And Joseph says, it sounds like you felt some tension in your jaw. And he goes on, he says, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to be alone for the rest of my life with all this anxiety and tension. As Joseph says, you experience an unpleasant sensation. Why are you adding a miserable self-image on top of it? So the difference between what we actually experience and the stories that we tell ourselves about it. So somebody gives us a look. And we're off into interpretations and meanings. They don't like me. They're out to get me. What did I do wrong? And it happens so quickly, we don't see the difference. So when you moved your hand, I'm guessing you were just feeling your hand. There wasn't that sense of, I'm doing this better than anyone else here. I'm the best hand mover in this room. (laughs) Or I'm so terrible at this. I can't do this. I'll never get it. I'll never be able to do this right this is going to bring me good luck. I'm going to win the lottery tonight. Or, oh no, this is terrible. What's going to happen next, right? But how much of our life do we spend spinning stories about what things mean and believing them? Lost in our interpretations, in the extra things that we add. So mindfulness is about starting to learn how to know, experience directly, without the distortions that we add, revealing what's what's there that we're not seeing. So we see the experience, and then we also start to see the layers that we're adding, that we weren't aware of because they were so real. She hates me. I know she hates me. She's always hated me. It seems so real. Then be, when mindfulness comes in, and we start to see, oh, That's just a story. I wasn't even aware that I was adding that. So experiencing things free from the past, free from our beliefs or ideas that we add, and mindfulness starts to reveal this inner dimension of our life. And this is when it moves from just a basic capacity of mind to what's called a spiritual faculty or an awakening factor. Mindfulness is one of the spiritual faculties. It's also an awakening factor. It means it moves us along on the path towards liberation and freedom. When it starts getting turned around inwards, when instead of just being aware of our life, from moment to moment, we actually begin to be aware of the workings of our own heart and mind, and to re- to see more clearly what's being added—that's extra that we weren't aware of before. I hurt my shoulder recently. Actually, it was it was a, a couple of years ago that I hurt it, and um, it's gotten worse lately. And. Um, I realized that it was that it was worse. One day, I was um, I was actually using my cell phone. I was texting, and all of a sudden, as you know, and it it had been hurting more. And I realized I was like, "Look at that! It's like it's how I'm holding my my arm when I use my cell phone." And it was so automatic, the way I was holding the cell phone in my arm i hadn't even noticed it and it was triggering this injury so this is a kind of a metaphor for what we be, what we start to see with mindfulness the ways that we are inhabiting our life that are so habitual so automatic that we don't even we don't even see them we're not even aware of them and then all of a sudden something something we see it differently Awareness gets strong enough, or we feel the friction, like I felt that pain in my shoulder, and we say, wait a minute, what's going on here? Why am I suffering? Where is this coming from? I was speaking with a student the other day about loving-kindness practice. We were talking about doing some loving-kindness practice um, for herself. and In the course of the conversation, She had a realization, she said. I never realized that it's hard for me to offer love and kindness to myself because there's a part of me that believes I don't deserve it. And she was kind of taken aback to actually see that belief that was so fundamental she hadn't even noticed it. It's like that story of the two young fish swimming by the older fish. And the old fish says to the younger fish, nice water today, isn't it? They say, yeah. And then in the next frame, one of the younger fish turns to the other one and says, what's water? You get it? We're so in it that we don't even see it. It's like, It's the air that we're breathing. So, mindfulness can start to reveal that which we don't see. That which is so automatic and habitual, it's like the glasses that we're looking through. So, all of our experience, everything that we know in life, passes through the doorway of our heart and mind, which in Buddhism is not separate. Heart, mind is one, uh, almost sense organ that we experience sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thought, meaning. All of it passes through the mind. It's this filter, and mindfulness is like cleaning the filter. Trying to see what's, what are the lenses through which we're perceiving, and as the, as mindfulness grows in strength the power of that awareness begins to reveal how the mind is working. We can start to see where our mind is distorting reality, where it's adding something that's extra that hasn't been seen previously. There's been a lot of um, discussion recently in the last few years, particularly this year, um, in uh, public and the media about bias, unconscious bias, implicit bias, and the effects in society of bias. So particularly when there's racial bias uh, combined with power, the devastating effects of that. So when... uh, you know, law law enforcement agents have unconscious racial bias, how that leads to excessive use of force and kind of hundreds of years of history of that in this country. Or, you know, when legislators have unconscious bias, how we get laws that either give advantages to one group of people or disadvantages to others in terms of like redlining and after uh, the GI Bill, how African Americans weren't able to get loans or crack cocaine laws that have incarcerated people of color at much higher rates than fair-skinned people, or bias in the workplace. If there's uh, gender bias in the workplace, women get paid less, aren't offered promotions, and so forth. So bias combined with power leads to harm. Very clear. So bias simply means a certain inclination or temperament, an outlook. It means that our mind slants in one way. Bias can be positive or negative. It can be conscious or unconscious. All of our minds are biased in certain ways, and this is what we start to see with mindfulness. So to practice mindfulness is to uncover bias. It's to reveal that which was previously not seen before. In the mind. To bring awareness to our experience is to reveal bias. It's to reveal that which was so unconscious, the water we're swimming in, that we didn't even see it. So we start to see how the mind leans in one direction. So, for example, we are all biased biologically to prefer pleasure over pain. It's an inherent bias. I like feeling good. I like pleasant sights, pleasant smells and tastes and sounds. I don't like unpleasant sights, smells, tastes and sounds. I don't like unpleasant thoughts. I don't like having an unpleasant self-image. You know, That's a bias. There's a leaning, there's a bent in the mind. And a lot of spiritual practice a lot of contemplative practice is studying the friction that comes from preferring pleasure and stability in a world that's inherently unstable, in which pleasure and pain aren't in our control. When there's a bias and reality is is otherwise, then there's friction. That's called suffering. So to develop true mindfulness, again, undistorted awareness, a knowing that's intimate with experience that's not filtered by the past, that's not filtered by the socialization process, by our experiences that can see and know things directly without distortion, to develop this particular quality of awareness means revealing the ways in which we're biased. It means seeing those places where it, where, our, where our vision is distorted, where we are judgmental or prejudiced for or against something. And if you sit for even a few minutes, you will see very quickly that we are not neutral observers. <laughs> we have very clear preferences. We like some things and we don't like others. Where The mind is judging and evaluating all the time we are far less objective than we would like to think. Once we acknowledge that, once we can be real with ourselves about the fact that we are biased, then we can begin to tease apart what's actually happening. As long as we're living in the illusion of objectivity, there's no way to see it. So We're just swimming in the water, right? Once we recognize, no, like, I'm seeing from a very particular angle, whether that angle is our biology in terms of preferring pleasure and stability over pain and instability, or whether that angle happens to be living in the male body, having light-colored skin, having education privilege, being heterosexual, I'm speaking about myself, right? These are all angles. It's a vantage point from which I view reality. Based on my life experiences, based on how I've been socialized growing up in America. This is why traveling is so healthy, if we're able to, if we have that privilege, to get outside of our culture. And remember, the first time um, as an adult I left the United States and went to Asia, it blew my mind, realizing that so much of the whole way my world was structured, everything was relative. Everything is structured, it's conditioned, it's relative. You know, the way we eat with our hands or with forks, the time we get up, how we shower, how we go to the bathroom, it's all relative. So it takes a lot of humility to look honestly at our mind and at our life, to see our own biases It takes a lot of humility, and it takes a willingness to not know, to say, what are my assumptions? How am I giving unconscious preference in certain ways? You know, which way does my mind lean? So in your particular field of work, how are we biased for or against those we come in contact with when you walk down the street? The other people you see, how are we biased for or against them based on our life experiences, the media we've been exposed to? Can we begin to be aware of those filters, to actually see them, to allow mindfulness to reveal that which was previously not seen so that we can have an experience of life that's more direct, that's more fresh and real? The past few years, I've done some work um, training educators and school teachers in mindfulness. And there have been some recent studies that have shown how implicit racial bias affects disciplinary actions in schools. Even how preschool teachers can be predisposed to perceive challenging behavior in students of color without being aware of it. So to practice mindfulness is to reveal bias. It's to become aware of these habituated ways of relating to life, to one another, to our institutions, and to ourselves. As we practice mindfulness, we discover successively deeper layers of bias. And when we encounter each pattern, we start to study its origin. We start to see, where does this come from? And we learn how these attitudes, these particular leanings and filters arise from past experiences, from automatic associations in our memory based on our life or on conditioning. As a a cisgendered male, I, I... Clearly, remember the first time I became aware of my conditioned tendency to give less weight and credence to a woman's voice. Really humbling. I was co-teaching with uh, with a woman, and I started to notice how when I when I spoke versus when she was speaking, there was this experience of feeling that my voice carried more weight in the room. It was really, and part of that awareness came from having checked in beforehand as co-facilitators and and saying, you know, like, hey, I really want us to be able to learn together. I'm open to feedback. Like, as a man, I want to make sure that, like, I'm creating space for you and not, you know, coming forward too much. I want to be sensitive to that. Please let me know if I slip into that unconsciously. So I was kind of looking in that direction already. And then that um, assumption in my mind, all of a sudden became very clear to me. It's humbling and it's empowering. Because as soon as we become aware of a bias, it holds less power over us. It has less sway over our actions. When we notice a tendency to lean in one direction or another, then we can consciously choose a different response Every time we become aware of a previously unconscious bias, our world gets a little bit bigger. We become a little bit more free. So at first this process can be difficult. It can be surprising and uncomfortable. Because by definition we we don't we can't see our own blind spots. That's why they're blind spots. But over time, what happens is we start to get used to realizing how little we know. With each new awareness, with each new thing that we see, with each new shift in perspective, our humility deepens. There's that sense of, oh, look at that. There's another way in which I'm a little more free. I'm a little less bound by the past. My eyes are a little less clouded. And we can learn to rest in a a space of humility, of not knowing, instead of needing to have things figured out or believing that we have to be perfect somehow, that it's okay to make mistakes, that that's what it means to be on a path. And this quality of openness and humility, this willingness to look at that which we don't see, that which we are unaware of already, is the most fertile ground for learning. And the more we look, the deeper the layers go. So in the Dharma, in Buddhism, they talk about distortions of awareness, that there are deeply embedded biases in the mind. I've been speaking about social and cultural biases that kind of get implanted through life experience. In the Dharma, mindfulness goes even deeper to the root level in the mind. They're called the vipalasa, the distortions of perception, where we see that which is impermanent and changing as permanent and constant, in which we see that which is stressful or ultimately not satisfying as peaceful and as holding promise for deep and lasting satisfaction. That's a bias in the mind that we're unaware of, that we keep looking for something to fill us up in a world that can't ultimately provide it. We have to see that leaning. We have to see that tendency that's unconscious. That's a distortion of our awareness. There's a tendency to see that which is fluid and uncontrollable as solid, fixed, and subject to our will. So these distortions of perception, they happen on a moment-to-moment level. They work their way into our ways of thinking and ultimately harden in certain views, certain beliefs in our life. And as my first teacher said, mindfulness is the only way to be free. It's through this power of an undistorted awareness, of a willingness to look at these areas that we have not seen, that which we are not immediately perceiving, that they can be revealed and then slowly let go of, actually step out of them. I think I want to end with a quote from the great American author James Baldwin that speaks to this particular topic. He said, Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. So, this is the invitation and the promise of mindfulness to actually face everything in our heart, in our mind, all of the layers. And then ultimately to be able to live in this body, in this life, in this world today from a place that's not defined by habits or expectations of others or the past. And if there's ever a time that we need to discover how to live with one another and in our society in ways that are not defined by the past, I think it's now. So I offer these thoughts for your reflection tonight. Thank you for your kind attention. So we have a little bit of time um, for questions or comments. And uh, maybe I would suggest that we start with questions and comments related to this particular theme. And then if there isn't anything or we run out, then we can just kind of open it up to more general comments, questions about the path and your practice. Hi, I'm Denny. So what do you think of um, spontaneously saying the exactly right thing? What do I think of spontaneously saying? Exactly the right thing, just without thinking in conversation just spontaneously replying just like that exactly the right thing but if you can do that great i know for myself <laughs> i know for myself that's not always the case because because there are biases so what comes spontaneously is not always quote the right thing because we mistake what's hab- we can mistake what's habitual for what's natural So what comes up spontaneously is often habit, which means it's being filtered through the past and through our conditioning. So it feels like I'm being spontaneous, but true spontaneity actually takes practice. We actually have to practice shedding the layers of conditioning in the past to be able to be truly freely spontaneous. So that's the paradox, is that true spontaneity is actually cultivated because it's a state of openness and not knowing. What can appear spontaneously, what can appear spontaneous to our mind might actually be habit. So I would encourage you to just investigate and look more closely. I don't know whether this is what this gentleman was thinking, but I was thinking that um, your talk really focused on examining our biases as negative things, and some of my biases Mm -hmm. I think serve me well, Mm -hmm. you know, upon reflection. Yeah. And uh, I wonder if you could address that. Give me an example so I know what kind of positive bias um, you're speaking of. Okay. uh, uh, A lot of my career has been in theater, and my mother was a very theatrical person, and I'm very grateful that she was because she taught me to be... um, More outgoing than introverted, mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. and to you know without being obnoxious. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think there's a there's a there's some nuances here. I appreciate your your pointing out my emphasis on negative bias. Um, I think I'm focusing on that because that's where we tend to suffer, and that's where we tend to create harm for one another. Um, I think that there's it's important to make a distinction between what i'm speaking of as bias which is an inclination um, sometimes a prejudice or a prejudgment in one direction from uh, like one's character or um, a kind of um, disposition you know it's a, as i'm speaking i'm realizing it's maybe a gray area or a fuzzy area but you know like some people are more extroverted, some people are more introverted. Is that a bias or is that more of like your character? Right. So I don't know, but I think it's, it's an interesting area to explore in terms of like what's a natural expression of the particular being that is you versus what's a bias in terms of something that's been conditioned in you uh, that's leading to, say, harm. So... That's a little bit of a tangent in terms of your actual question. In terms of the question about what about positive biases, for me, I want to be aware in my life. So even a positive bias, if I'm unaware of it, it's going to direct my behavior in an unconscious way, and I'm going to have less choice, which ultimately could lead to challenges, difficulties, entanglements. So if it's a positive bias, like, you know, I tend to see the good in others, right? That's a positive bias. I tend to have faith in humanity, okay? That's a positive bias. If I'm unaware of that bias, I might get myself into trouble because I might not pick up on signals that someone's not really trustworthy because I'm coming from this positive bias. So what awareness does is it allows us to have choice over what inclinations we follow, what impulses we follow, and which ones we don't. So I think that the the point of mindfulness practice is to have more awareness, so then we can choose what intentions, what perspectives we pick up, and which ones we leave aside. I hope that's I hope that's helpful in some way. Yeah.
1: Well, I think kind of um, related to, to that. Um, I you know I think I. I tend to think of myself as a helpful, caring person. And uh, something happened to me about a year ago. I was um, sitting on the BART, and uh, we stopped at the West Oakland stop, and a lot of people got on. There weren't enough seats, and there was a man standing next to me who had an umbrella, and he, he seemed like you know he was having some difficulty, and, he's, and he was kind of whipping the umbrella around. And I just like touched his arm, which was... And I said, oh, you know, I think you, you might want to put the umbrella, you know, just put it on the floor and so it doesn't hit anybody. And he got very angry at me. Mm-hmm. And he hit me. He, I mean, not hard, but he hit my arm. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought, hmm, okay. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, well, you know, a seat opened up in another part of the car. So I thought maybe I should just get up and, um, and move because I'm, I don't think that I'm being particularly skillful mm-hmm. with this fellow And um, it was just, it gave me something to reflect on, you you know, and uh, uh, that, um, hmm.
0: Thank you. Yeah. yeah, I I think I get what you're saying, or let me see if I get what you're saying, which is that sometimes when we have a certain self-image, if we're not aware of it, it can actually um, impel us to act in certain ways that are not skillful. Exactly. Yeah, if we're, if we're not aware of a certain self-image we're holding, and, and in, in other ways also, if I'm very identified with a certain self-image, so for example, if I, if I think, I'm a Dharma teacher, you know, I I know so much about, about spirituality and the mind, and uh, I get very identified with this role and this sense of who I am, uh, and then somebody says, hey Orin, you just, you know, you just cut in line. I might not be able to hear that because it doesn't fit with my self image. Because I'm so identified with this that I either have to let go of this self image to hear what they're saying or discount what they're saying in order to maintain this self image. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And, and and there was also a piece of it in there for me of needing to protect my self realizing that i wasn't being skillful yeah. and and needing to protect myself by moving yeah. Um, yeah. and then things ended up working themselves out he ended up taking that seat i hadn't even thought about that right <laughs> he ended up taking that seat so then his umbrella wasn't
0: yeah. we have time for one more if there's anything else yeah we're in thanks um, so, one detail in your talk, first of all, thank you for yeah. hold it a little talk. closer. Uh, one detail in, in your talk was about situations when we lose mindfulness because we are used to the situation. Yes, driving habituation, or, right. Yeah. What would you say or recommend when the object of habituation is the Dharma itself, when you lose the beginner's mind? Yes. It's a very important topic. Yeah. I gave a talk on this recently at Marin Sangha. Um, the, so, if you want, you can find that or email me if you can't find it and I'll send you the link. But I think that um, there are many ways to keep that sense of inspiration and aspiration alive and to have that sense of freshness. Um, one of the most important ones is reflecting on death, which the Buddha recommended that we do every day. And not just a kind of, you know, like, oh yeah, I'm going to die. Just like, like really, you know, like a, a deep contemplation of death that tends to wake us up from habituation. Um, Finding ways to connect with inspiration. So whether it's um, reading, speaking with Dharma friends, um, listening to a different teacher who has a different slant on things as a way to change things up can be helpful. I find devotion really important and something that's not talked about very much. Also cultivating a, a relationship of devotion Um, because we don't want to meditate a lot of the time. (laughs) At least I don't, you know, it's like... And so, but there's there's, there's a beauty that comes from the willingness to offer oneself, to offer one's mind, one's heart in the service of something greater. And so finding ways to connect with ritual or devotion can be a, a way to keep things fresh. Um, whether it's through having an altar, offering incense, bowing, chanting, things like that. And I think being reminding ourselves of how little we know. It's one of the things that I, I'm continually inspired by when I'm with mentors or teachers of mine, is how humble they are, and not in any self-conscious way, like how genuinely interested they are in learning, and how, you know, there's a wonderful story of Ajahn Chah talking about the four different stages of of enlightenment. In the Theravada tradition, you have these, you know, stream-enterer, once-returner, non-returner, arahants, these four stages of awakening, and he says, um, stream enterers, little uncertain of things, little uncertain. Once returners, pretty uncertain. Non-returner, very uncertain. Arahant, has no idea. <laughs> <laughs> so remembering that, like that the, the direction of practice is actually knowing less and less, on one level. It's not about accumulating information or knowledge. It's about letting go, being open and vulnerable, not knowing. So, on that note, when we come together to practice the Dharma, to contemplate these teachings, the understanding in the Buddhist tradition is that there's a kind of force to our practice, that there's a a moral force, almost an energy to the way we're applying our minds and our intention and that we we can offer that force, that energy outwards, that we can actually share it or dedicate it to others. And so just invite you now for a moment to just bring to mind any beings in your life or in the world to whom you'd like to share the goodness of our time together. Near or far, those you know or don't know, those living in peace, those living in war. May the goodness of our time together be shared freely and widely with all beings everywhere for their safety, their happiness, and for their freedom. May there be more peace on this earth. May there be more peace on this earth. So, thank you so much for joining us tonight. I'll be at Spirit Rock on June 15th if you want to join me. It would be lovely to see you there. And if not, I look forward to seeing you somewhere else down the road.